Hi, this is Dr. Timothy Bartell for the Poetry Corner at the St. Constantine School. Uh, today we're going to talk about a poem by Sylvia Plath. Now, Sylvia Plath is someone who, in a previous podcast, I had said some, I don't think disparaging things about, but I had, uh, I had said that she sort of ushered in, in the 60s through, I think, the present, a approach to writing poetry, uh, which traditionally we call confessionalism, which is writing poems in what appears to be a very authentic autobiographical voice about one's own life, often about negative experiences, sometimes uh, maybe even traumatic experiences in one's life. And so I have sometimes said things about confessionalism, like I think that it is easily abused, I think that uh, it can be a, a form of poetry that prioritizes emotional rawness over things like formal acuity, even formal daring. But when we look back at Plath's work as opposed to the imitators of Plath, I think we see that Plath was a poet who was deeply steeped in uh, English and American formal traditions and at her best rises above those common criticisms of confessionalism. So today I want to talk about a poem by Plath that's one of my favorites. It was written in 1962, just before her death in 1963. And Plath's death has kind of become this legendary thing that we uh, interpret all of her poetry through. And especially her later poetry of 62 and 63 is often very dark, often very expressive of obsessions with death and her clinical depression. This is a poem that I think shows that Plath as a speaker, maybe not Plath as a writer, but Plath as a speaker, is showing us her own distress, or at least the distress of the speaker, but also contains some hopeful and downright, I think, theologically and religiously interesting aspects. So I want to read this poem. This is called Nick and the Candlestick. Uh, and then talk through it. Nick and the Candlestick. I am a miner, the light burns blue, waxy stalactites drip and thicken, tears the earthen womb exudes from its dead boredom, black bat airs wrap me, raggy shawls, cold homicides, they weld to me like plums, Old cave of calcium icicles, old echoer. Even the newts are white, those holy joes, and the fish, the fish. Christ, they are pains of ice, a vice of knives, a piranha religion drinking its first communion out of my live toes. The candle gulps and recovers its small altitude, its yellows hearten. Oh, love, how did you get here? Oh, embryo remembering even in sleep your crossed position. The blood blooms clean in you, Ruby. The pain you wake to is not yours. Love, love, I have hung our cave with roses, with soft rugs, the last of Victoriana. Let the stars plummet to their dark address. Let the mercuric atoms that cripple drip into the terrible well. You are the one solid the spaces lean on, envious. You are the baby in the barn. 
So this poem has a lot of the things that Plath does so incredibly well. The stanzas are each three lines long, and there's not a regular line length in any of the lines. Instead, Plath is playing with sound patterns and often uh, heavily alliterates both within a stanza and across stanzas. And she loves rhyme, especially internal rhyme. That is, rhyming words that don't necessarily come at the ends of lines only, but are in the middle, the beginning, sometimes throughout a line or two. We see this actually a lot in uh, the more sophisticated approaches to hip-hop these days, where you have series of words that all have the same sound in them. I think especially of lines like a vice of knives, a piranha religion, drinking its first communion out of my live toes. There's so many eyes in there. Vice, knives, piranha religion, its first communion, my live toes. Going back to the vice of knives. Beautiful sound even though the descriptions, as is often the case in Plath, are a little disturbing, a little scary, a little dangerous. Uh, let's, let's work through the poem and try and understand the narrative that's going on and the scene that's being described. First, uh, the, the title itself is suggestive of, I think, a, uh, a, a lullaby or a nursery rhyme. Uh, Nick and the candlestick reminds me of Jack and the candlestick. Uh, Jack jump over the candlestick, that old nursery rhyme. But it's not Jack and the candlestick, it's Nick and the candlestick. Who is Nick? Well, we don't know yet. Those, those who know a bit about Plath's biography might want to guess. But I want to, I want to be careful and uh, I want to remember the words of uh, Christine Perrin, a poet that I got to hear speak about poetry this summer and got to interact with a little bit. She, she reminded us that uh, people like Plath are often over-historicized. We want to read every line through their biography. Um, so I'm going to avoid historicizing right now. I want to see what does the poem itself give us. If we stumbled upon this poem out of the blue, we didn't know it was by Sylvia Plath, what would we get from it? Well, Nick and the Candlestick suggests a nursery rhyme setting. We already are thinking of children. Also, candlestick. A candlestick is an old-fashioned form of lighting a room, right? We don't use candlesticks anymore unless we're being intentionally anachronistic. I am a miner. The light burns blue. Waxy stalactites drip and thicken. Tears the earthen womb exudes from its dead boredom. These are the first uh, couple sentences. So we start with, I am a miner. Uh, it's an interesting way to start out something that we associate with a nursery rhyme in the title. I am a miner. Okay, the speaker is a miner. Now, of course, given that we know it's a poem, perhaps this minor might also be something else. Perhaps the minor is a metaphor, not just a literal description, but we don't know yet. So we're going to go with, okay, we're in the setting of a mine. I'm a miner. The light burns blue. As we know, miners need light in order to see what they're doing down in the mine. Okay, we have a miner with a blue light. Waxy stalactites drip and thicken. Just a wonderful, very Plathian description here. Once again, these eyes are very visceral. The waxy stalactites drip and thicken. Now, 
we know that the title refers to a candlestick. So when we hear wax, I think we start thinking, ah, this is a little metaphorical. It's not just a miner who's seeing stalactites. It's someone looking at a candle and seeing that beautiful, strange, unique every time way that the candle drips down itself and creates these stalactite structures. Waxy stalactites drip and thicken, tears the earthen womb exudes from its dead boredom. This is interesting. The stalactites are created by the earth from the tears of the earth, figuratively. This isn't tears of sorrow, though, that we might expect, or tears of care. These are tears of dead boredom. There's something wrong with the earth in this mind setting or this mind metaphor. It's dead boredom. Okay, so something's wrong. Maybe not in the speaker yet, but in the setting. Black bat airs wrap me, raggy shawls, cold homicides. Okay, so we're in a cave. What lives in a cave? Well, bats. We might expect bats. But this is a very, once again, distinctly Plathian way to describe the bats. The black bat airs wrap me raggy shawls. Uh, The shawls uh, are reminiscent of bat wings. And then we have this line that I would not write as a poet. This this is the kind of thing that I I often say, Plath's allowed to do this, I would never write this. Not because I think it's wrong, but because I think I wouldn't know how to fit it into a poem. We have these great, very physical, concrete descriptions of the raggy shawls, and then up we have the um, the waxy stalactites, and then we have this description after raggy shawls, cold homicides. Homicides is such a clinical, legal term. Now, of course, homicide makes us uh, also think of the very visceral and tragic act of murder, but homicide itself is a very different type of word and a very different register than raggy shawls. So Plath, in her boldness, which I think she can get away with, I think she's earned it, uh, she, she places in this term that makes us think of the legal system of crime uh, into this uh, previously very earthy, earthen, uh, old-fashioned, antiquated scene of the miner with the candle. Cold homicides. They weld to me like plums. What exactly is welding to her? It's like a raggy shawl. It's like a black bat, particularly the wing. We got that image. But actually, the literal word she uses, black bat airs as in the air around her. So literally, there's a description that the air itself is like a black bat. The air itself is like a raggy shawl. The air itself is a cold homicide. Not quite sure what it means, but it certainly doesn't sound like a pleasant feeling to be surrounded by these airs. They weld to me like plums. All of a sudden, we have fruit. Fruit isn't something we find down in a cave. Uh, neither are homicides, or at least that uh, way of talking about something. Murder, I think, would be a word we would associate with caves. Uh, I think we think of Tom Sawyer uh, sneaking through the cave that he knows that, that murderous thieves have used. I wonder if Tom Sawyer might be haunting this just a little bit. I'm not sure. I'll leave that to those who are familiar with uh, Plath's reading habits, which I am not. 
They weld to me like plums. Old cave of calcium icicles. Old echoer. We have kind of a, a summary of what we've just seen. Old cave of calcium icicles. Okay, that kind of summarizes the dark, dank, stalagmite area. And then she brings in sound. Old echoer. We actually haven't had any description of the sound of a cave, but she reminds us, oh, the cave has echoes in it. That's also a little creepy, especially in the context of bats and homicide. Even the newts are white. It's almost like a throwaway extra observation. Even the newts here are, well, white. That's actually the first time we've had a description of something white. We have the blue light. We have the wax, which is pale though she doesn't focus on the color of the wax. We have, of course, the black bat airs, the plums, which are dark, and then all of a sudden, white newts. It's like she's a painter, and she's slowly adding in the colors we need to see, and white has arisen. That's kind of wonderful. Those holy joes, that's a description of the newts. Even the newts are white, those holy joes. So we finally have religious language, holy we need to start tracking the religious language because it's going to blossom, not necessarily in totally comfortable ways throughout this poem. And the fish, the fish, Christ, and that Christ is just Christ exclamation point. It's, it's an exclamation that I think if this were another writer, I might think, ah, oh, she's, she's kind of taking the Lord's name in vain in sort of a trivial way, but I know Plath. And I know that she's not going to invoke the name of Christ unless she has a really good reason to. So at the outset, I think this does border on a sort of cursing. But we'll quickly realize, I think, that cursing is not the be-all and end-all of, of discussions of the person of Christ in this poem. Christ, they are pains of ice. So we had the newts that are white. They are holy. Holiness, I think we think of as um, associated with light and glowing. The fish, the fish, Christ, they are pains of ice. So once again, we have this pale idea. Now, where are we exactly? Literally, we're in a cave, but we've already got indications that this might be a speaker in a more mundane setting that's comparing their experience to the experience of a cave. But if that's so, we have very particular elements of a cave, not just stalactites, not just the different colors. We have the inhabitants of the cave, the bats, the newts, the fish. This is very, once again, characteristic of Plath. She loves bringing in flora and fauna into her descriptions, which all in the end may be metaphors for something else. They are pains of ice, a vice of knives, a Purana religion, drinking its first communion out of my live toes. Uh, this is just wonderful. All of a sudden, we get a sense of where the speaker is within this cave. They seem to be standing either at or in water that these pain of ice fish are in, and the fish are drinking her toes. You get, I get the picture of piranhas coming up and nibbling and sort of sucking the blood out of the toes of someone who, for some reason, is standing in the water. Perhaps they can do no other. Perhaps they are caught. Uh, and Plath, once again, I don't think this is a, a description I would use, 
but piranha religion drinking its first communion. All of a sudden, we have a very explicit uh, reference to not just religion, but this core sacramental experience and practice within the Christian religion of communion. But here, it's the it's the uh, carnivorous fish who are having a communion of her toes. Uh, very plath, very weird. I think that if I had never read this poem before, I would think, wow, this is getting super dark super quick. And I don't even know if I want to keep reading. This just got really weird. And the, the possibility of a throwaway taking God's name in vain and then a description of communion in such kind of a disgusting, traumatic fashion... Um, I don't, I don't know, I don't know that I trust this poem at this point. Let's keep going though. The candle gulps and recovers its small altitude. Its yellows parting. We have a turn right here. If this was a sonnet, I would call this the volta. Something changes here. We're at a place where the speaker is being eaten. And it's being eaten not in a violent way, but in a way that is sort of religious sustenance to the things eating her. The candle gulps and recovers its small altitude. The the tone of the language changes with the gulp and recover altitude. Gulp, we're still thinking of the piranhas, right? They're gulping down the gobbets of flesh, as Prudentius would have said, um, of the speaker's toes. Very gross. All of a sudden, the candle recovers. It recovers its altitude. Now, altitude, like homicide, is this very Latinate word. I think of someone like Emily Dickinson when I see a word like altitude. Uh, It's a technical, almost abstract term uh, that seems to, to ground us after all that gross piranha feast. It's yellows hearten. I love that word hearten. I think a lesser poet might have read, its yellows brighten or its yellows deepen. No, its yellows hearten. Yellow itself seems to have some emotion or lack of emotion. It it has lost heart. But now that the candle gains its altitude, the color heartens, the color uh, gains courage. It's It's a wonderful way to describe a color in emotional terms, in terms of emotional change. Oh, love, how did you get here? Oh, embryo, remembering even in sleep your crossed position. Finally here, I think, in the address to another, we start to get a picture of what might actually literally be going on in this poem. It's a woman or a speaker, maybe not a woman, though the maternal uh, sense here is very strong. It's a parental address to a child. Oh, love, how did you get here? Oh, embryo, remembering even in sleep your cross position. Uh, the cross position of the embryo, the, uh, the, little, the little baby uh, you see on an ultrasound with their arms crossed over their chest and their legs kind of pulled and crossed. Of course, though cross, we just had images of Christ and of communion. That cross has those connotations uh, through those references. So there, there is something Christ-like or at least Christ-blessed about this, about this beloved, this embryo. The blood blooms clean in you, ruby. We had a kind of 
violent image of blood earlier with the piranhas drinking from her toes. Here we have clean blood in this other, this clean ruby blood. The pain you wake to is not yours, she goes on to say. So there's this innocence, this this naivety in this addressee, which which I think further indicates that this is is a small child, maybe even an infant that's being talked about. Love, love, I have hung our cave with roses, with soft rugs, the last of Victoriana. Uh, Once again, Victoriana, very much plath. We have this lyrical, almost almost enchanting description of hung our cave with roses, with soft rugs. You know, Victoriana stuff. Once again, we, we remember, oh, this is written in the 1960s. This is someone accoutering a cave. Uh, in a old-fashioned way. Um, it also reminds me of Alexander Pope. I have no idea whether Platz is thinking of this, but Alexander Pope famously found a little cave in a bank, a uh, riverbank under his house, and he decorated it and put furniture in it so they could have literary parties in it. I don't know if she's thinking of that, but interesting Alexander Pope reference. Of course, Alexander Pope uh, is living in the uh, in the era of Queen Anne and then under the reign of George I, so uh, a while before Victoriana. Let's look at these last, uh, these last couple clauses because they are just gorgeous, and then we'll conclude. Let the stars plummet to their dark address. Let the mercuric atoms that cripple drip into the terrible well. You, well, let's actually stop there. That, that, seems, that seems to bring back some of the dark imagery. The stars plummeting to their dark address. It's very Miltonic, right? Uh, or even, uh, even Blakeian. Uh, when the stars threw down their spears, watered heaven with their tears. Uh, or the description of the angels falling out of heaven down to dark abysses in Milton. She's saying, let them do that. Let them do that. Let the mercuric atoms that cripple drip into the terrible well. Uh, All of a sudden, this is more 20th century description of chemicals. Let the chemicals do their thing, the mercuric atoms that cripple, right? This isn't a, this isn't a benign chemistry description. This is uh, the crippling effect of chemicals and maybe even science itself. Let the angels fall. Let the stars fall. Let the chemicals and acids do what they do. You, she concludes, are the one solid space. So you are the one solid, the spaces lean on envious. You are the baby in the barn. All of a sudden, this is not a poem about a minor, not a poem about some woman having a tragic piranha accident uh, in a cave. This isn't even just someone looking at their baby in the dark with a single candle and saying, ah, I love you even though the world's crazy. This is an exalting of this child up to a Christological level. All of a sudden, this is a very strange, very uh, not necessarily traditional image of Mary and Jesus. Now, I don't think it's literally Mary and Jesus. I don't think, I don't think, uh, I don't think Plath necessarily wants us to see the speaker as Mary, but the speaker has put herself into a Marian position by the end. You are the baby in the barn. You are the child in the stable. You are Jesus. Christ was called on earlier in a way that seemed perhaps flippant, even inappropriate. But Christ, it, Christ now becomes what this whole poem has been about. 
the baby in the dark with a little light, even though the darkness surrounds, even though it seems homicidal in its darkness, even though it seems like all the old associations of religion have turned strange and dark and predatory, this baby all of a sudden becomes to her what Christ is, the one solid the spaces lean on. Space there is interesting. It's not just uh, all the open areas in the world. Space there is, well, the space of the 20th century, the space that we explore, the space that we analyze and send rockets into. All space leans on the child and gifts. Why? Well, theologically speaking, Christ is the one who holds the whole world in his hands. This starts in its title with a seeming nursery rhyme reference, but by the end, this this is a Christmas story. Or at least it exalts the very common experience of sitting up late with a child, uh, being tired, maybe being scared, maybe being worried. Uh, This places every parent in the place of Mary or Joseph and places every child in the place of Christ. Plath, as far as I know, was not certainly a traditional believer, uh, though she is very interested in religion and religious imagery. And I think we often associate her with a sort of rejection of religion as oppressive. But here she's used religious language to illumine experience, illumine even dark, disturbing experience. Uh, the fear of being a new parent, the fear of having a young child, especially the fear of having a young child in the nuclear age. This is what theological language can do in poetry, even by poets who wouldn't necessarily agree with uh, the Nicene Creed, say, uh, about Christ. Christological language comes in and illumines all human experience. And it's one of the reasons why I think it's important to read poetry not just by people who we know biographically were believers, but to read widely in the tradition of poetry in English and see how the gospel illuminates human experience even in those who who might not necessarily otherwise go to the gospel. I don't think that this poem is supposed to make us, you know, all believe in Jesus, but I think this is Plath really seeing the uh, the theological and Christological implications uh, of her experience, um, or at least of the speaker's experience. Uh, there's more to say about Plath. There's more to say about this poem, but I wanted to share it because I love how it moves from strange description to downright terrifying description to real, true, exalted, beautiful description. I love the hope. And I think the hope in Plath's poetry is something that's important to look at, uh, even as we look at the darkness. And that's true, uh, that's true of the world, right? Poetry makes us face the extremes, and Plath shows us how to do that well. This has been Dr. Timothy Bartell for the Poetry Corner. Thank you.